0: Welcome to Digitopians, a podcast about people using the internet in creative ways to make the world a better place. I'm Zach Otterer Cohen, and now I'll look at the militaries of the world the wars they wage and a community of hobbyist researchers working to hold those militaries accountable making sure they're not lying to us using information any of us could get on the internet today's episode is called the boat watchers <laughs> Throughout this episode, we're going to use a metaphor you probably already know, the drums of war. Basically, the rhythms of escalating and de-escalating tensions that come before a full-scale military conflict. Here's what we're going to talk about. What does a country sound like when it's itching for war? We will make no distinction between the terrorists who committed these acts and those who harbor them. What does it sound like when countries intentionally try to escalate those tensions?
1: If you obey, you will be safe. Over. A Navy patrol boat. This is British warship Foxtrot. Uh, Foxtrot uh, 236. This is a uh, Navy patrol boat. No challenge is intended. How
0: much more info is out there now that can help us keep track
2: of the world's militaries? There's so much stuff out there at this point, especially when it comes to the military. I've come across stuff that freaks me out. Like there's no way that this should be out there. And who's out there looking at that information? Who's sitting at home in front of their
0: computers, watching these conflicts play out around the world in a level of detail we couldn't even imagine 20 years ago? Who's out there listening for the drums of war? It's just nerds helping nerds, you know what I mean? You can think of this episode as a love letter to those nerds. Those nerds he's talking about are members of the OSINT community, open source intelligence. They're resourceful, they're doggedly aligned with the truth and evidence and verification, and as a community, they can put together what's often the clearest picture we can get of what's happening on the ground in a conflict zone, sometimes in real time, using information that's freely available on the web. Everything they find out, they share publicly. They're not into scoops or credit, they just want to get as close to the truth as they can in a field that's full of secrecy and disinformation. It's a noble mission, I think. So OSINT nerds, this one's for you. I was an eight-year-old living in Queens, New York, on September 11, 2001, just barely old enough to remember it. The most vivid memories I have from that day took place on Long Island. My parents wanted to get out of the city, so we went to the beach. Standing on the shoreline in jeans and sweatshirts, we watched the smoke from Manhattan billow out over the Atlantic. Then we got some pizza nearby. My parents watched the news. President Bush addressed the nation.
1: The search is underway for those who are behind these evil acts. I've directed the full resources of our intelligence and law enforcement communities to find those responsible and to bring them to justice. We will make
0: no distinction
1: between the terrorists who committed these acts and those
0: who harbor them. I couldn't hear it at the time, but in that speech, Bush was beating the drums of war. I kept eating my pizza, but my mom heard it. She always called herself a pacifist. I didn't really know what that meant but I knew that she had a deep sadness and hatred and fear about all the violence in the world. And as she watched the president, she kept repeating under her breath, they're going to start a war. For the next few months, that was one of her mantras. When we started hearing things about Iraq and Saddam Hussein and their weapons of mass destruction, it changed from they're going to start a war to they're going to lie us into a war. And she turned out to be right. I myself wouldn't call it lying, But she was right that the Pentagon was gearing up to start what would become one of the longest wars in the history of our country, and using bad information to do it. She described that moment in 2002 as a turning point for liberals like her. And she wasn't the only one. In that period, I was a graduate student. That's Jeffrey Lewis.
3: Jeffrey Lewis. I am a professor at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at
0: Monterey. He's also? I am the, I
3: I always say, founding publisher of the Arms Control Wonk blog and the co-host of the Arms Control Wonk podcast.
0: And if that wasn't enough, he is? Director
3: of the East Asia Nonproliferation Program at the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. A mouthful. I have a long title because I don't matter.
0: Okay, so Jeffrey's opinion definitely does matter in his field, which is arms control, weapons of mass destruction. And he says that watching the slow march to war in 2002 as a grad student helped him figure out what he wanted to do with his life.
3: So much of my work today is based in that moment because I felt so powerless. It seemed so obvious to me that the intelligence to justify that war was comically thin You know, when you see cartoon illustrations of things rather than real pictures, uh, it's just a sign that, that there probably isn't that much behind it.
0: And we're going to come back to those cartoon illustrations in a bit. But I asked Jeffrey a question that I've been wondering about. If the Internet was in 2002, what it is today, if we had then all the tools and all the sources of information that we have now, would we have been better able to point to anything from the run up to the Iraq war and called it out as untrue? I think we
3: probably would have debunked a fair
0: number of them. So I asked Jeffrey for an example, and he told me about this guy named Curveball. Curveball. (laughs) There was
3: an Iraqi
0: defector
3: um, who, who got the alias Curveball when he showed up in Germany, which should have been a warning that he wasn't terribly reliable.
0: What Curveball basically said was that Saddam Hussein had these trucks that were actually mobile weapons laboratories that were manufacturing biological and chemical weapons. Curveball claims that he's been to a facility where he's seen firsthand these trucks coming in the front door and then leaving through a back door. The only problem with that story is that at that facility, there is no back door. There's just a wall.
3: Curveball is just making this up. And anybody who looks at a satellite picture of the facility would know he's full of it. What's really interesting, though, is that at the time, there were so few satellite pictures, and none of those pictures were available to the community at large. And so the CIA saw the wall, and they, they convinced themselves that it was a fake wall, that it was a fake wall that was only put up when the satellite was overhead, but that when the vehicle had driven through, um, they would take the wall down. and. Like, this is a terrible argument.
0: I want to drive home how crucial that claim was to justifying a war against Saddam Hussein.
3: And so Colin Powell, in his famous U.N. speech, presents uh, an artist's illustration of one of these mobile biological weapons trailers and says that this is a kind of capability that the United States has to invade Iraq in order to stop. But of course, they never existed.
0: That speech that Powell gave at the U.N., that was a major drumbeat. It helped build momentum and international support for the eventual invasion. And he was using an artist rendering to do it instead of photographic evidence. Jeffrey said that if the U.S. government tried to make that case now... Today,
3: that wouldn't be sustainable.
0: These days, Jeffrey says, you can go online and find services that put out high-resolution satellite photos every single day. There's a service that uses radar, which he says can track things moving on the ground, and that would have shown that the trucks were just going out the same door that they were coming in. You could even find photos of these facilities on social media sites in the background of a selfie taken by a local on the way to work or an employee of the facility.
3: So if we had had all of that data today, it would have been absolutely clear that there was a wall there, that that wall had been there for years, that that wall had never moved, and that vehicles were driving in but then back out the way they came. And I think it would have been just transparently clear that Curveball was a liar.
0: Coming up, we'll take a look at one example of how all the information that's out there today can be used to build a clear picture of something that's going on in a conflict zone. Last summer, Iran commandeered a British oil tanker in the Persian Gulf. That's a drumbeat, right? Not a small one. And there was a group of researchers sitting at home on their computers that sussed out the story as it was happening. That's coming up. Hold tight. So we just heard George W Bush beating the drums of war against Iraq. Let's hear what those drums sound like today.
1: In a few moments, I will sign a presidential memorandum to begin reinstating US nuclear sanctions on the Iranian
4: regime. Seems like desperate times for the Iranians. Uh, their economy has largely because of US sanctions, their economy has gone into recession. The United
3: States has been in constant discussion with allies and partners to help them transition away. From Iranian crude to other alternatives. Iran has stockpiled more enriched uranium than allowed in the 2015 nuclear
0: deal Iran has announced it will break the allowed enrichment levels it has already broken the stockpile levels President Donald Trump has designated Iran's Revolutionary Guards as a foreign terrorist organization we're at substantial risk of uh, a war with Iran uh,
4: either because of a a blow-up in the Strait of Hormuz or thereabouts where something escalates or because the Trump administration decides that Iran's uh, violations of the uh, Iran deal even though we left it are unacceptable so they decide Bomb.
0: The U.S. and Iran have clashed again at the entrance to the Persian Gulf. President Trump says an American warship destroyed an Iranian drone today when it came within 1,000 yards of the ship and ignored warnings to move off. So, those are some news clips from 2018 and 2019. Geopolitics happens over long periods of time. And each one of the stories in that montage, that's a new beat of the drum. You may have caught some references in there to the Strait of Hormuz at the entrance to the Persian Gulf. For the Iran watchers in the OSINT community, the Strait is what they've got their eye on.
2: The Strait of Hormuz is, is an amazing spot to, to follow because there's so much uh, you know, resource and power that comes through that, that little spot. Uh, it always causes a lot of tensions. That's Eric Moreno. He's a veteran of the
0: Navy where he served on nuclear submarines. And when he says that the Strait is full of resources and power, he's talking mainly about oil. The strait is the only route for tankers to get access to a sixth of the world's oil and a third of its natural gas, which of course comes from countries along the Persian Gulf, Saudi Arabia, Oman, Qatar. Keeping that route open is crucial to keeping gas prices low and preventing energy shortages. For a world economy that still runs on oil, the stakes are high. For better or worse, sanctions have been ravaging the Iranian economy since 1995. Better because that's what sanctions are supposed to do, Worse, because they haven't really seemed to do much to slow Iran's nuclear ambitions. And because, in large part, it's everyday Iranians and not the ones behind the nuclear program that bear the brunt of the poor economy. And Iran can't retaliate with their own sanctions. It doesn't have the same clout the U.S. does on the world stage. But that doesn't mean they can't bite back. They detain tankers carrying oil from their regional rival and neighbor across the Gulf, Saudi Arabia. Eric explains.
2: For Iran, it's a way to, it's a way to, to push back. You know, it's a it's a real easy way for them to inflict economic damage and not actually kill people. You're not going to put a pipeline all the way from the Middle East to the U.S. or to Canada or to Australia. You have to ship it on a ship. So if you stop that ship, now all of a sudden Australia's lost 30% of the refined oil, which is going to drive their prices up, which is going to make everything go crazy. So you know, it, it just really depends on what you're looking at. So those
0: are the stakes of keeping the Strait of Hormuz open for business, and why it's such a big deal when Iran starts capturing ships. But now, I want to give you a sense of what it actually looks like on the ground, so picture this. You're a crew member on a British oil tanker called the Stena Imperio. You spend weeks out at sea on this massive ship that's just one cog in the wheel of global trade. You and your colleagues in the shipping industry are responsible for nearly 90% of the goods and raw materials that keep factories running and inventories stocked. You're going to pick up 50,000 tons of crude oil from Saudi Arabia. After sailing east around the Arabian Peninsula, you change direction and head into the Persian Gulf. And you know what sometimes happens in the Persian Gulf. Let's say you're the communications specialist, you're running the Stena's radios. This is what you hear come over the airwaves.
1: You will be safe.
0: That's an Iranian military patrol boat talking to the Stena.
1: If you obey, you, be, you will be safe. Alter your course to uh, three six zero degrees immediately. Over. And the Stena, Imperial.
0: That's a British military ship called the HMS Montrose. It's also talking to the Stena, but it's really talking over the Stena to the Iranian patrol boat.
1: This is a British warship Foxtrot 236. Sir, so I reiterate that as you are conducting transit passage in a recognised international strait under international law, your passage must not be impaired, impeded, obstructed, or hampered. You are ordered change your course to 360 360 degrees immediately. If you obey, you will be safe. Over. A Sepha Navy patrol boat, this is British warship Foxtrot. Uh, Foxtrot uh, 236, this is a Sepha Navy patrol boat. No challenge is intended, no challenge is intended. I want to inspect the ship for security reasons, over. A Sepha Navy patrol boat, this is British warship Foxtrot 236. Uh, sir, your request that you are transmitting to the Stena hinder and impede her passage. You must not impair, impede, obstruct or hamper the passage of the MV Stena Imperio.
0: If you you will be safe. Did you hear that? Boarding vicinity. It means we're commandeering this ship. And that's exactly what they did. Iranian forces repelled onto the deck of the Stena from helicopters, took the crew hostage, and piloted the tanker off its course and into Iranian waters. The crew and the ship were both released about two months later, but I wanted you to hear that because I just love what a good look inside geopolitics it is. We hear about posturing on the news, and we talk about tensions, but it's rare that we get a glimpse of the actual tension, the human tension, what one single drumbeat of war actually sounds like to those on the ground. <laughs> so now that you've gotten up close and personal with what the drums of war sound like i want to introduce stefan watkins my name is uh,
4: stefan watkins i'm a open source uh consultant that does ship tracking and plane tracking and i um i've tried to take a hobby and make it into a business
0: i asked stefan for a little bit more detail about what he does and this is what he told me
4: i work for a company that i can't say who it is (laughs) And I do things that I can't explain. <laughs> okay, so, uh, but to suffice to say, there are planes and ships involved, and uh, it has to do with uh, looking for things that are unusual.
0: Looking for things that are unusual. That brings us to the other reason I wanted to play that tape of the Stenna. Hours before there was any official confirmation, hours before mainstream media picked up the story, the OSINT community on Twitter knew that something was up with the Stena, in real time, while it was all going down. If you go to marinetraffic.com, you can see for yourself the types of maps that these guys were looking at, but it's just what you'd expect. Ships on a map represented by little arrows, color-coded trails behind them documenting their path. When you click on one, you can get a lot more detail. Where's the ship registered? What's its destination? What's its gross tonnage? The type of cargo? The ship's speed the last time it checked in? You can get all that online for free for nearly all of the ships underway around the planet. Using all that info, here's what the Twitter OSINT community saw. About 15 minutes after the Iranians captured the Stena, one of these OSINT researchers named Intel Doge, who's got a profile picture of a Shiba Inu, noticed that the Stena was headed in the wrong direction. He posted a screenshot of the map on Twitter and noted that the tanker's path, a sharp turn away from its destination in Saudi Arabia, toward Iranian waters was, quote, very concerning. Another researcher with the handle Elint News chimed in with the insight that not only was the Stena off course and headed for Iran, but specifically it was bearing toward a port infamous for Iranian military activity. Others in the thread brought up the fact that the British had recently seized an Iranian ship, and that the Iranian military had put out a strong condemnation and alluded to retribution, and maybe the capture of the Stena was the retribution they were talking about. Others on Osin Twitter also noted that that British ship, the Montrose, was making a beeline for the area where the capture happened, but hadn't gotten there in time. Now, keep in mind, the audio that you heard didn't surface until a few days later, but it goes to show how close to the story, how close to what actually happened these guys got using just publicly available information. Stefan Watkins is a major player in the OSINT world. Here's what Eric Moreno has to say about him.
2: Yeah, and I love Stefan Watkins, man. He's he's, he's kind of my Obi-Wan Kenobi at this point. Eric is the guy who said at the top, It's just nerds helping nerds, you know what I mean? So maybe the Star Wars reference is
0: fitting for this community. And this is part of the story that's actually the most interesting to me. The community that sprung up around all this open source information. It's a self-policing community. It values collaboration and transparency. It's nerds with cameras helping nerds with computers verify that what they're seeing on their screens is actually happening out in the world. Nerds who make sure they're fact-checking themselves as much as possible before spreading information. It's everything we try to be in a newsroom except it's all happening out in the open. For sure, I'm a nerd myself, but I'm not an OSINT community nerd, so I'm going to let them do most of the talking. Jeffrey Lewis, from the beginning, that arms control expert, he gave me his take on how it was possible for the U.S. to start a war on laughably bad intelligence.
3: It was only possible because there was a pre-selected group of believers who were allowed to participate in the conversation and no one else could come play.
0: There wasn't anyone in the room to say, hmm, that wall looks pretty permanent to me. Are we sure this guy named Curveball isn't lying?
3: When you don't have the kind of free flow of information, you end up with these little closed groups that are made up of like-minded people. Today, I don't think that's possible because that information is going to show up in the press, and there's going to be a really robust debate outside, and that, I think, is going to have the effect of both forcing them to reveal more information, but also feeding in contrary information into their process.
0: So how does OSINT stack up as a participant in that debate? For one thing, they see themselves as on the same team as the press in terms of seeking the truth, but they aren't always wild about how newsrooms cover military matters. Stefan Watkins.
4: It is very seldom that I find the American military lies directly, but they will help you mislead yourself. (laughs) They will give you some little tidbit of information, and if you go off on a tangent and you are incorrect. They will not correct you and they will let you keep going because at no time will they ever get stuck with, well, you told me, well, no, I didn't say that. You know, you made that up on your own. Right. So uh, it's uh, it's a game to, to some.
0: But it's not a game that he thinks many journalists are particularly good at.
4: And that's kind of what I'm trying to to foster by getting this stuff in the open source community, telling people that, telling journalists that, hey, you can, you can double check whatever it was that General so-and-so told you. Like, you can look up where that ship was last.
0: We've already talked about ship tracking, but that's just one piece of an entire domain of information that Stefan wishes the public, including journalists, would use more often.
4: A lot of the time, the military will say, well, that's classified, we can't tell you. Well, that's fine, but there's a, there's a point where the classified and the unclassified have to meet. They may have classified programs, and they may not want to tell us about, say, open skies or where their uh, Navy subs are or ships or whatever. But at some point, they've got to come into harbor. They've got to land somewhere. They've got to refuel. Those are the sorts of things that we can see as ordinary public people, whether it's on a webcam or using a transponder or uh, just looking at somebody's Instagram.
0: That space where the classified and the unclassified meet, that's where the OSINT community lives. Also on Twitter. And it's Twitter that makes it possible for Stefan to verify information half a world away.
4: There are so many ship spotters that I rely on. Um, There was one who took pictures uh, basically on demand. I I sent him a a message because I'd seen that he'd taken pictures around Carrasso and he was in Carrasso, and uh, so I said, hey, you know, there's this ship that's coming in, I don't know if you know it, and maybe you'll have time to take a picture of it. He takes pictures of everything. And uh, he said, yeah, yeah, he's been waiting for that ship to arrive, but he expected it in an hour or two hours or something, and so I said to him, I was direct messaging, him, I said, well, actually, like, it's coming in the harbour now, like, now, now. And he pretty much, you know, it was like one of those comic sort of uh, Warner Brothers cartoons where, you know, the the little dust sort of devil sort of behind him as he shot out the door to take pictures of uh, of this ship. And he got the best pictures of the
2: ship I've ever seen.
0: Eric Moreno weighed in on the symbiosis between OSINT researchers and these
2: ship spotters. Yeah, you have this nerdism working off nerdism, you know? <laughs> it just, it just, I got, they, these guys don't have the time or the, the patience to sit on a computer all day and watch AIS, but Stefan does. And he'll say, hey, look, there's a really cool, you know, um, A Russian, you know, carrier or whatever is coming through. You should take a look at this. And then that confirms to him that it actually is there. Information
0: can be spoofed, compromised, or otherwise dubious, especially in geopolitics.
2: Verifying it is one of the pillars of the OSINT community. That's why Eric says... I mean, they're not perfect, but I'd be willing to bet you they're more credible than some of the main sources that you get your information from, for sure.
0: Newsrooms are not perfect either. They do their best to be balanced and accurate, But so much of the reporting and the editorial decision-making happens behind a veil,
2: not so of the OSINT community. But these guys are saying, hey, here's where I got it from. I got it from this spot. Look at this. You guys can verify it, too. So now you have everybody verifying this information. It's not just being fed to you anymore because you can go online and verify if it's right. It's all there. As it
0: is with so many communities, much of it boils down to reputation, reputation, reputation. If you want to be taken seriously, you start with original research. And here's what that looks like from Stefan, who at the time was keeping his eye on a Russian port city called Ust Luga.
4: It's a, it's a big port. It's got, it's got a big rail yard associated with it. It's well linked into the Russian infrastructure. And uh, it's well known to ship arms. So I, I keep an eye on that, that port specifically. And I keep an eye out for specific ships that are owned by companies that are favored by Putin's cronies. So uh, if you follow the right companies uh, from the right places, you can find all the weapons that are coming from Russia to any, any African nation or Middle East nation that's being fueled by, uh, by Russian weapons, including Algeria. So Algeria, not that they're at war with anybody that I know of at the moment, but um, they were getting short-range ballistic missiles last year. I think there was a news article before they got the shipment saying that there was some agreement that was penned for this shipment, but I, I hadn't noticed. Um, I just noticed the shipments that were going, and they were these big transport ships with something that was very explosive. So I don't remember if there's two or three shiploads of, of stuff that went to Algeria, but these ships would go back and forth from, uh, from the Baltic. Uh, past Denmark, past the English Channel, and they'd, they'd be labeled appropriately Hazard A, so that everybody would know along the way that, you know, don't don't run into me. And um, then they would arrive in Algeria. And once that shipment was done, like two or three ships, they published a report or like a, a press release saying, the shipment is done, Algeria's got their, their boatload of short-range ballistic missiles. And that was when I knew, oh, hey, I've been watching ballistic missiles going back and forth. <laughs> i didn't know what it was but i knew it was big and i knew it was explosive
0: so once you've got your research you post it on twitter hashtag it osint and keep threaded updates as you find out more stuff and as the community pokes
2: around and weighs in if you've piqued their interest and that's where the other great side of open source intelligence comes in as you 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 network with this community and they're all just nerds too you know it's like going into a vfw or going into any other place where it's just a bunch of nerdy people that love that thing and you, you start to share
0: information. Sharing is caring. That's another tenet of the OSIN community. That's how it works, that's how they make these connections between different areas of expertise. Stefan Watkins again. There's a
4: few uh, fastidious people who, have, uh, who are really into specific planes or specific countries' planes or that sort of thing. Even the modeling community, uh, people who build models really like their detail. And uh, if you're looking for detail about a specific plane or a ship, you're wondering, you know, how many how many funnels or something there are on a ship or how many propellers they have or whatever, you can find everything online. You can find somebody who's really into that specific model or that specific year of plane or ship or whatever. And uh, all of these obsessive peoples are, are fantastic. They're, they're a real you know asset to, to the global OSN community because they document their stuff and they allow us who, I mean, people like me who may not know that particular model or may not know French tanks or something, and be able to uh, help me be able to identify what these
0: things are that I'm seeing. Jeffrey Lewis gave me a pretty good example of the benefit of opening up the information that you have.
3: We were working on a problem in North Korea, and we just, we could not understand how the North Koreans moved a particular truck around in a factory building, because the building seemed too small to drive the truck in. And a, a colleague of mine, she actually posted the question on Facebook, and her cousin, who was a truck driver in Canada, answered and he thought we were the dumbest people in the world because everybody knows in factories you move vehicles around on casters and it was just so funny because to him that was like an utterly obvious piece of information and we were like dumb eggheads who were going to die of carbon monoxide poisoning because we would like turn on the vehicle in a factory Uh, but to us that was really important information that we wouldn't have
0: gotten any other way Stefan, Jeffrey, and Eric all use OSINT for their jobs, but for a big portion of the community, it began as a hobby. So I wanted to know, what's the driving force behind that urge? Why spend hours learning the patterns of the seas and the skies, just so that you can spend even more hours looking for anomalies in those patterns? Eric Moreno. Like, I'm
2: not doing this to write articles. I'm not doing this to, to, to make money, really. I mean, we don't make much. It's just the love of it. Stefan Watkins.
4: I don't need to have my name associated in the newspaper article that comes out about it, but it is nice to say, hey, I predicted that.
0: For Watkins, and he's not alone in the OSINT world, it's not just about getting the scoop. It's about holding public officials accountable, not to what he wants them to do, but to the truth.
4: I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of cat and mouse, but it isn't cat and mouse with the adversary or who we take the adversary to be. It's not, it's not the Russians. It's not the Chinese. They seem to want to keep the information from the, from the public. And that's where I I have a problem with that, because we make our electoral decisions in our democracy based on what we see in the news. So if things are being twisted or perverted in the news for some propaganda purposes, with some cold war with Russia, whatever, well, we're getting fed the same stuff that they're trying to feed the Russians to mislead them, and then that misleads us, and then we elect people based on these convoluted ideas that we've got based on misinformation or disinformation. So that, that's where I have a problem.
0: Watkins isn't out for a gotcha moment either. He takes no pleasure in discovering how our governments are lying. He likes it way better when he can prove that they're telling the truth.
4: I think it's sort of uh, the curiosity, and um, I think maybe there's been enough enough things that have happened historically where we've been told one thing, and later we find out, well, it wasn't really like that. So I would rather, I think uh, not, I'm not alone in thinking that I would rather proof of whatever statement comes from the government. And uh, I, I don't know, I think I coined a phrase the other day saying there's nothing, there's nothing more patriotic than that you, that you could do than prove that your government isn't lying to you.
0: leave it there at the very opposite of blind patriotism, patriotism that does its due diligence, a patriotism that keeps its ears peeled for the drums of war. I'm Zach Otterer-Cohen. Thanks for listening.